Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. In case you missed the news last week, I am going to be doing a live podcast recording with Vitalik Buterin, the creator of Ethereum. It will be in New York City on the evening of March 20th. Check out the show notes to buy your tickets now. Are you ready for global cryptocurrency money laundering regulations? CypherTrace secures the crypto economy with powerful AML tools for exchanges, crypto businesses, and regulators. My guest today is Joyce Yang, founder of Global Coin Research. Welcome, Joyce. Thanks for having me, Laura. Global Coin Research is a research and media platform focused on the crypto scene in Asia primarily. Is that correct? Yes, we are a paid subscription newsletter focused on breaking down the most important happenings in Asia, cryptocurrency and blockchain. So we provide two important values. One is information where we filter and translate the most important news happening in Asia, which essentially includes news about the largest exchange exchanges, Binance, you know, OKX, mining in Asia, which is also a very top topical and top of mind topic for folks. And also the latest regulations and corporate involvements in crypto and blockchain in the different Asian countries like Japan, Korea, China, and Singapore. And then the second value we provide is context, where we do thorough written analysis, podcast interviews, and conference calls for our subscribers. So we try to break down the news for our readers who are not as familiar with Asia and what's going on there. So for example, last time recently, we did a Binance CEO discussion about how Binance Chain is building on Tendermint. Uh, and that was a conference call with Kyle Samani from Multipoint Capital. And wait, I'm sorry. And it was also with CZ, the CEO of Binance? So it, it was it was about a discussion that Kyle had with Binance CEO CZ. Oh, I see. I recently did an Unchained podcast with Devi Wan and Eric Meltzer of Primitive Ventures, in which they described the Asian crypto scene. We didn't have too much time to discuss Korea, though, which was at least one, if not the epicenter of the crypto craze of 2017. And you were in Korea recently. What does the scene look like there now? Yeah, the scene is definitely not as exciting, I suppose, as the 2017 markets. But I think there's still a lot of things to look forward to in 2019 now. And I think for folks who may not know that much about Korea, uh, so there are certain aspects that one should know about. Uh, why Korea is such a, you know, popular space and ecosystem for cryptocurrency and cryptocurrency trading. So as a society, Korea generally is more relatively advanced in technology and education, and it's also relatively homogenous, but there is a huge income inequality. So when I spoke to a friend last time when I was in Korea, um, who was local to this e crypto ecosystem there, he's mentioned that there are three give-ups that uh, now a current young white collar worker experience living in Korea. So essentially, 
they give up their savings because it's hard to save. And they give up owning a house and they also give up getting married. So those are three fascinating things that they give up on, which I asked why. And apparently, so 50% of population uh, of Korea lives in Seoul, the capital. And the cost of living there is about 10 to 20% lower than that of New York's. But it's not that much cheaper. And on the flip side, the average salary for a university undergrad coming out of a top school is about $50,000. And moving up to a senior executive or SVP, apparently in Samsung, for example, uh, only raise their salaries to about $200,000. So these folks don't really make that much money. And it's really hard to save with the cost of living that high. And subsequently, they also give up owning a home because real estate prices are actually quite ridiculous in Seoul, which is comparable to that of New York, where I'm based. And, and in Korea... Just to go back, I, d- I didn't really understand when you were saying that it's 10 to 20% cheaper to live there, but the cost of living was the same of, as New York. I, d- I don't understand what you're, what that meant. So the cost of living there is about 10 to 20% lower that of New York, but the salaries are a lot lower than that of the U.S. as well. Oh, the salaries. Okay. Yep. Yep. Keep going. Um, so then, and you know, because they make very little money or relatively lower than what the cost of living is, uh, it's hard to uh, save money and it's hard to also own a home because the homes are very expensive. And in Korea, there's also a tradition uh, where when one gets married, the guy's side usually offers a house during marriage. Um, and if you can't afford a house because you don't have money, how do you get married? So these are the three give ups in Korea, which I thought was uh, super fascinating. And I think those are approximate numbers, but that gives an idea of what's going on in Korea about the younger generation. So, you know, but one thing that differentiates them from other countries is that they have the most educated young population. So according to OECD, rank, uh, they rank Korea as the most educated country in the world with about 70% of the young folks from age 24 to 35 have attained a tertiary degree. So that's equivalent to a university or college degree. Hmm. So with a lot of education, but very little money and very slow room to move up because the hierarchical nature of the Korean society, I think this is why we see a lot of Korean young folks turning into cryptocurrency as a faster way to strike rich. And I think another interesting thing that people may not notice is that uh, there are some constraints in their tech ecosystem. So, you know, in the U.S., if, you know, you're a young person who's ambitious and want to make money fast and you're smart, you could join an early startup and potentially benefit from a company's exit or go IPO. Um, so that is one way to really skip or um, avoid going up the corporate ladder. But in the tech ecosystem in Korea, it's relatively immature. So the largest limited partner for venture capital firms in Korea is the Korean government. So they want to foster innovation. So they give money to these venture capitalists. But as a result of that, the venture capitalist incentives are very different. When their LPs are the government, they often all get to go into the deal together. So everyone gets to get part of the deal. No one's really competing between the VCs. So that ends up... And wait, why, why is that? Wait, just because the government is... I don't understand why the fact that the government is the LP means that they owe it all, invest in the same deals. Because usually as a traditional LP, I give you money, I expect returns. 
um, for the government's intention, they want to make sure that their innovations and their technology uh, being uh, kind of pushed to for, push forward. So there isn't as much of a direct mandate to make money directly, right? It's not like the government's like, I want X percent returns. Um, and I also think that's also a relatively newer concept where there is not much of sophistication around the requirements of these venture capitalists and the way they're setting up their firms. Um, so that um, generally the deal-making space has ended up leaving people to all being able to have it uh, get their hands in the shares of the companies when they're investing without really much competition. So that kind of ends up with a subpar VC pool. And when you have a subpar VC pool that doesn't really um, have as much experience helping um, the ecosystem or really ex expecting a lot from the companies because of their LPs, also not expecting that much, but really just kind of pushing, putting money in to push forward the tech ecosystem, then very few startups become successful. Huh. So it's almost like the VCs act almost like an extra arm of the government in a sense where it's sort of like just kind of the government saying, hey, let's make sure that we're just fostering innovation, whatever that might mean, but we don't have any particular outcomes that we, you know, that we're looking for other than just like spending some money on, on startups. Is that what you're saying? Like, I'm sure there are more specific mandates, but I think the expectations are not that high. Um, for example, I know that the Korean government recently provided a $35 million fund to enhance blockchain, right? And and that could mean a lot of different things. But um, oftentimes, I think these monies go out to different folks and different institutions to get deployed, but they don't necessarily become very effective. All right. So in a moment, we'll continue learning a little bit more about how a VC works in Korea. But first, a quick word from our fabulous sponsors. Ready or not, the Financial Action Task Force anti-money laundering recommendations soon go into effect globally. If you handle cryptocurrencies, no matter where you do business, these new AML laws will apply to you. CypherTrace helps exchanges, ICOs, funds, brokerages, and regulators understand and manage crypto asset and compliance risks. Learn how to reduce your exposure and prepare now for tough new regulations. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. Learn more at cyphertrace.com slash unconfirmed. Back to my conversation with Joyce Yang of Global Coin Research. So you were in the middle of talking about how the VC industry is different and not as competitive as here in the U.S. So how, how does it work exactly? And, and why do they all go into the same deals together? Like that to me just makes it seem like it would be super hard for them to differentiate themselves to other LPs or to you know, to investments. Yeah, um, I think so most of the VCs going to deals together. So, you know, um, it's not like in Silicon Valley or in the U.S. where we see competition between the VCs where, you know, brand matters a lot and your experience matters a lot. But in, uh, in VC in Korea, it's relatively new as a, as a space and institution. And also at the same time, um, there aren't that many uh, startups that come out. So I think as a result, you, you know, as, as a society, Koreans tend to, uh, I'm generalizing here, but they're relatively more risk averse. And, and also that's partially driven by the fact that there hasn't been any 
really breakout tech companies coming out of, of, of Korea. So, you know, you don't hear about unicorns coming out at all. So as a result, I think many folks are driven to working for Samsung or LG Electronics, you know, some of the largest tech conglomerates, which is, you know, pays a lot more and is a lot more stable as a job um, than joining these tech companies. Yeah. So earlier when you were talking about how a lot of young people are pinning their hopes and dreams on crypto as a way of attaining success outside of this really restrictive model, um, the New York Times basically had an article saying kind of the same thing. They were talking about how there's really like very limited avenues to success. And so when you were saying that, you, you know, you're seeing people that are interested in crypto for that reason, are they basically just speculating or are they trying to create things or like what what type of usage or adoption are we seeing in Korea? Yep, I think it's primarily speculation. So um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but casino gambling is illegal in Korea. There are uh, casinos in Korea, but it's illegal for local Koreans and Korean citizens. So I think because of the fact that uh, there is a lack of high return investments in Korea, um, you know, not just because of gambling, but also uh, the inability to kind of move up quickly in a corporate job or or pursue, you know, a potentially high, promising, high potential role in a tech startup. Uh, what many young folks do is they end up trading and uh and, and participating in these exchanges. And these exchanges really took advantage of that as well because they started very early on, right? And um, they were being able to uh, kind of really, I would say, ride the waves of many educated but ambitious Korean uh, young folks who are looking to make a quick buck. And earlier you mentioned the conglomerates, which I'm assuming are kind of like Samsung and Maybe LG. I, I actually don't know. I definitely know Samsung is doing stuff in blockchain. I'm not sure about the others. But in general, what moves do you see the conglomerates making in the crypto and blockchain space? Yeah. So I think the conglomerates are, you know, uh, some notable ones include Kakao, which is the messaging app uh, of, of, of what many Korean citizens use. And Kakao has a subsidiary blockchain arm called GroundX, uh, which has been... Um, that focus on blockchain operations and developing blockchains within kind of the cacao ecosystem. Uh, GroundX has been able to raise money in late last year, uh, I think around, you know, after kind of marketing through the U.S. as well as the rest of Asia to kind of build an uh, internal blockchain platform for cacao. Um, so that's one of the notable ones. I think that's super interesting. And I think some of the other actually interesting projects there are um, – what uh, the Korean government is doing. And um, they, Korea generally has been a, a relatively technologically advanced country. And we know with the kind of educated folks who are there, uh, they're able to uh, really uh, been looking for build, forward to building a lot of blockchain products, such as, you know, uh, ID identification on the blockchain and um the Korean government, I think, is working with Icon on that. Um, so those are some of the things that those guys are doing. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, we shouldn't discount the Korean government because as far as I understand, they were the ones who had the idea to export Korean culture. And as we've seen in Asia, that was a, <laughs> like a runaway success. Um, I remember yeah. 11 years ago, I think I was 
in India in this like very remote region doing this trek in the Himalayas. And um, there, everybody apparently was obsessed with Korean TV shows and movies and, and music and stuff. And they were telling the local people were telling me that like all the guys would try to get their hair cut, like the Korean movie and music stars and all the women would like try to imitate the Korean, you know, those uh, drama. I don't, I don't even know. Um, but I just remember being like, wow, like this, this was a very successful move by the government, you know, cause I think it was the government who created all those K-pop bands and whatever. Um, but anyway, yeah, yeah. <laughs> K-pop um, is definitely a global <laughs> phenomenon. Yeah. I'm but, a big fan of Blackpink. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I um, understand what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but the what you mentioned about cacao is interesting to me too because in a way so I'm not sure exactly what they're doing but as far as I know it's a messaging app so maybe is it similar to what like Kick and Kin are trying to do? I believe so. I don't know the details of it actually. Um but I think they had a plan but mostly from my interpretation and my conversations with folks there it sounds like they're building something very local. Um cacao is primarily used by Koreans so you know, you can imagine that, you know, you build uh, blockchain-enabled messaging or something like what uh, kind of Signal and... Um, oh, Telegram. Yeah, yeah exactly. And mm-hmm. and, and uh, mobile coins doing. Um, um, so, and I think another interesting thing, uh, company that's there is Terra, which um, hasn't been in the media very much, but they are building a stable coin and, you know, many stable coins come from the U S and I think there hasn't, that's not true. I take that back. Tether is, is, is based out of Hong Kong, out of Bitmex. Um, sorry, Bitfinex, but, uh, I think they're doing some interesting partnerships there with actual companies. And, uh, I think most recently with the Mongolian government, uh, in launching a stable coin. So, hmm. Yeah. Oh, wow. yeah. So, okay. so there's a lot of room to, I think, uh, of a market to tap into in the, in Asia. And I don't just mean by kind of business partnerships, but also, for example, um, talent. Uh, you know, in Korea, I think it was such a shame to see a lot of the folks losing money, you know, per your mentioned New York Times article, because these young folks just wanted to, you know, change their lives by, you know, potentially investing or buy into these coins that could go up in prices. But many of them, you know, are also very educated and smart. And there's so much that many, I think, projects could uh, kind of work with there by just tapping into that market uh, and to the talents and the kind of the smart people who are there. Yeah. And is, so because I noticed and you tweeted that or, or you wrote somewhere that you're still hopeful about uh, the developer community in Korea, despite all these other kind of headwinds that you described. Is that the reason why? Yes. Um, so I went to Korea uh, primarily for a Tezos conference, uh, which that was the first Tezos conference held in Korea, which was super fascinating because Tezos, as you know, is a is a is a is a blockchain project, but the group itself is a group of legally and managerially independent organizations. So uh, what that means is that there is a Tezos Korea uh, Foundation that uh, funds Tezos Korea events uh, locally. And there's a Tezos Japan that does that for Japan. And there's a Tezos Hong Kong that does that for Hong Kong, China. And then there's Tezos uh, uh, TQ or TCF 
that's focused on the U.S. And what Tezos Korea has been able to do, which is impressively, is aggregate and accumulate a, a number of executives and uh, developers, many of whom are students at this conference, to talk about, you know, OCaml, which is the programming language that Tezos built in, um, as well as kind of the potential applications that local uh, businesses could build uh, on top of Tezos. So I thought that was really fascinating because Tezos has always had a educational approach to their partnerships and um, their go-to-market strategy uh, in creating communities. So for example, they entered some partnerships with the top universities in Korea, including Seoul National University, which I think is the number one university uh, in Korea um, in ranking, and Yonsei University, which is also another top university. And they actually go to these universities, give them funding to um, to um, foster blockchain research and work with the professors there to teach students about camel. Yeah, and just to clarify for listeners, you're an advisor to Tezos. I, I'm working with Tezos. Yes. Okay, and I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Was there something else you wanted to say? Um, yeah, I think just generally that uh, type of community building, I think, is something that's more long lasting than what we see. You know, generally, traditionally, what project projects have gone to Korea for, which is you know. They go to Korea because they know it's an educative uh, and enthusiastic group of uh, people who just want to buy their coins. But there's yes. that is not yes. something long lasting, right? It doesn't it doesn't leave any uh, good taste in, in people's mouth now. Everyone lost money. Yeah. Um, but I think what some projects, I mean, and it's not just Tezos. I think Cosmos or or some of the other projects from uh, the U.S. are also looking to go to Asia. And Korea has always been one of their top stops to go to Asia for. And I think, you know, community building is something that some most projects shouldn't be, or all projects shouldn't really dismiss in this blockchain space. Yeah. Yeah. I think another, a couple other reasons why crypto could make a lot of sense in Korea is because it's such a highly wired society. I forget the numbers, but it's like some huge percentage are on the internet and have high speed internet access. And um, also because Koreans have a history of being very active in the online gaming space. And mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. has been said, you know, not only by me, but many other people, gaming is one of the applications that a lot of people think um, could be one of the the early areas in which crypto takes off. So, um, you know, since Koreans are already used to kind of dealing with digital assets through their gaming behaviors, um, they might be quick to adopt this kind of thing. All right. Well, yep, yep, I agree. Yep. I'm just one last thing. Uh-huh. I, I do agree with you because I saw, um, I was talking to Hash, the, the Korean crypto fund. They are looking to build a, a D app accelerator in Korea. So, uh, oh. so, you know, I think that's, that is happening and there's potential there for sure. But I, ultimately, I feel like what the Koreans, uh, often built is something that's very local to the ecosystem. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's obviously very good and it's going to be very tailored to the folks there, but it's, I often find it very challenging for them to kind of expand, um, beyond, you know, beyond just going to Korea, you know, even in the surrounding countries, sometimes they will go to, you know, expand into Singapore or Japan, but, uh, it's very hard to go towards the West. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, we will see what happens. Clearly, there are certain Korean brands that are now ubiquitous in the U.S., like Samsung is the most obvious example. But yeah, that's a huge, huge, huge company. So, okay. Yeah, well, yep, yep. It's been great having you on the show. Thanks for coming on Unconfirmed. Thanks, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. New episodes of Unconfirmed come out every Friday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Rayleigh Gallopoli, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, Daniel Ness, and Rich Strathalino. Thanks for listening.